Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. It's quite clear that the balance of power over time has shifted in the Russians' favor, and it's likely to continue to shift further in the Russians' favor moving forward. So we are in deep trouble in Ukraine. Is the war in Ukraine unwinnable? It's Thursday, February 29th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, foreign policy realists weigh in with some hard truths about American support for Ukraine. Also, happy Leap Day. But why do we even have the 29th of February every four years anyway? The people to blame for the February Leap Day is it's the Romans. Yeah, but what have the Romans ever done for us? We'll get to the history of leap years. But first... The criminal trial against Donald Trump for election interference was supposed to start next week. Now, it might not begin until the fall, when there's also a rather consequential election happening. The delay is because late yesterday, the Supreme Court said it has to weigh in on whether former presidents have immunity from criminal prosecution. That case will be argued in April, and it also puts the larger case on hold for now. Joining us to sort through all this and what it means for the election is former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance. She was nominated by President Obama and is now a professor of law at the University of Alabama. She spoke to Scott Tong. Uh, Let me ask you about the calendar implications here. Wasn't there a possibility the Supreme Court could have heard this case back in December? Well, there was. In fact, the um, special counsel's office asked the Supreme Court to hear this case directly rather than taking the time to have it go through the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court denied to do that, possibly the first hint that they didn't feel urgency to resolve this matter quickly. Yeah, okay. So as uh, Jack Smith is waiting to bring his election interference case, the Supreme Court will hear these oral arguments on whether Trump has immunity from prosecution. Calendar-wise, a decision could come late spring or early summer If the justices say Trump is not immune and Jack Smith's case goes forward, when might that case go forward? You know, I think that's the wild card here. The Supreme Court has total control of the timeline at this point. They could move quickly. We know that they have the ability to do that when they want to. They could hear argument and decide within days. Or they could hold this case, as they often do their most significant, difficult cases, for the end of the term. That could be late June, even the first week in July. And Judge Chutkin has promised Donald Trump's lawyers that they will have something around 88 days to continue their preparation before trial begins. So I think we can all do the math. That puts the the timeline close to, if not beyond, the start of early voting for the 2024 election. Yeah, so uh, if we do the math here and the Supreme Court's ruling is, say, June, and then we add three months or so 
doesn't that start to put us in the window within 60 days of election day? And and we know that the Justice Department has kind of an unwritten norm that no cases relevant to an election should come during that window. Well, there are two important things there. The first is that DOJ's prohibition doesn't apply to trying cases that have already been indicted and are in progress. That prohibition mm. is to taking overt investigative steps, a new indictment or, or subpoenas that become public, something oh, that would have yeah. the effect of influencing the election without giving the person under investigation the chance to respond. Um So, you know, I don't really think that that's the big concern here. Uh, The problem that I see, and this is based on 25 years of experience at DOJ, is that cases rarely go smoothly. A witness gets sick. Some issue comes up that requires a little bit of delay. It takes time Mm. simply for administrative steps, like the case to be returned from the Supreme Court to the trial court. So, uh, you know, I think the problem here becomes a matter of um, small delays adding up into a larger one at this point. Yeah. And there, of course, are are, are other cases people are watching. Could this question of immunity affect other cases, say the documents case in Florida or the election interference case in Georgia? And it absolutely will in both cases. It's been raised um, in Florida in the Mar-a-Lago case. Judge Cannon will have this issue to consider. Uh, It would not be surprising to see Donald Trump's lawyers ask her to stay all proceedings there until the Supreme Court finishes its work. In the Georgia case in January, Donald Trump's lawyers filed a very similar motion alleging presidential immunity that has yet to be decided. So by taking this appeal, the Supreme Court could well have delayed all three cases. Yeah. Uh, You have said, Joyce Vance, that voters deserve a trial before the election. Is it possible now that only one of the four trials could actually go to court before the election? That is the uh, hush money case? You know, it is possible that the case being brought by the Manhattan DA will be the only one. I think of that less as a hush money case and more as election interference, because that's Hmm. about Donald Trump in the wake of the release of the Access Hollywood tape, which called into question um, how he comported himself around women. The uh, Manhattan DA's case is about preventing voters from learning that Donald Trump had an affair with a Mm -hmm. porn star. Yeah, great. Joyce Vance, law professor at the University of Alabama. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, despite all the wrangling in Congress, one sad truth about U.S. military aid to Ukraine is that it won't be the difference between victory and defeat in the war. But it could help reach a diplomatic solution. After the break, some realities about the war in Ukraine and America's role in it. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Vladimir Putin warned yesterday that if Western countries sent troops to Ukraine or helped it strike targets in Russian territory, it would risk nuclear war. The United States has always said it does not plan to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. But the U.S. and Western allies do need to keep sending military aid to keep Ukraine in the fight. Maybe so, but our next guest says it's not ever going to be enough to make Ukraine victorious. Anatol Levin is the director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He spoke to Peter O'Dowd. So French President Emmanuel Macron floated this idea this week that NATO countries might send troops to Ukraine. Then that prompted Putin to make these threats about nuclear war. Uh, Is this typical Putin bluster or something more ominous? Well, Russia has threatened that if there is war with NATO, that this could escalate towards nuclear war from the beginning. And indeed, this is obvious. If Western NATO and Russian troops come into direct conflict, then there is obviously a risk of escalation towards nuclear war. Yes. I mean, it should be said, of course, that several European governments, including the British, who have been among the strongest supporters of Ukraine, immediately came out and ruled this out, sending their own troops to Ukraine. Right. It it does appear to be a fringe idea at this point. The United States feels the same way as most of of Europe. But does the fact that Macron even brought it up signal something to you about the state of this war? Well, yes. I mean, it does, because clearly there's an element of desperation here. I would imagine that Macron is getting some of the same advice from military experts that the US government is, which is that the odds are now strongly against the Ukrainians. I mean, that's partly, of course, to do with the delay in U.S. military aid. Uh, But it's also because the Ukrainian troops are heavily outnumbered and are likely to become more and more outnumbered. And they're also very short of ammunition. Uh, The reports from the front line all speak of the exhaustion of the Ukrainian army. And so time is not on Ukraine's side. I think you're right. The underlying issue here is whether and how Ukraine can possibly win this war against Russia. And I want to play this tape of political scientist John Mearsheimer. He calls himself a realist. Here's what he said recently on PBS NewsHour. We armed up and we trained the Ukrainians for a major counteroffensive last summer. And that counteroffensive was a colossal failure. And given what's happened since then, there is no reason to think that the Ukrainians can go on the offensive and win a war against the Russians. And if anything, it's quite clear that the balance of power over time has shifted in the Russians' favor, and it's likely to continue to shift further in the Russians' favor moving forward. So we are in deep trouble in Ukraine. So what we just heard reminds me of what you just said and also of something that you wrote recently in time, making the case that Ukraine cannot win this war. I mean, what do you think of what John Mearsheimer just said? Well, in purely military terms and economic terms, I think that's accurate. But what I'd like to say is we have never clearly defined, except in terms that are now completely impossible, what Ukrainian victory winning means. 
Sometimes Western leaders identified themselves with the Ukrainian official position, which is that Russia must leave all the territory it has held since 2014, including Crimea, and that there must be war crimes, trials, and reparations. Well, that is simply not going to happen if Ukraine cannot win a complete victory on the battlefield. And nobody is talking now seriously about Ukraine winning a complete victory. The Biden administration has sometimes said that the point of their strategy is to put Ukraine in a stronger position at the negotiating table, which implies eventually some kind of compromise. But the question then becomes, is Ukraine's position at the negotiating table getting stronger, or is it in fact getting weaker? Will Ukraine be in a worse position to negotiate a year from now than it is today? And what do you think? Will it? I mean, I'm looking at the loss at Avdivka on February 17th, and I'm wondering whether you think its position will be better or worse a year from now. I fear it will almost certainly be worse because you know, Avdiivka was one of the most heavily fortified positions in the Ukrainian line. So this is a very bad sign. But perhaps I could just add one more thing, which is when it comes to defining victory, look, in terms of what Putin was aiming at when he launched this war, and in terms of the past 350-odd years in which Russia has dominated Ukraine, for Ukraine to achieve independence, full independence on 80% of its territory, and with, as I found traveling in Ukraine, anti-Russian feelings now absolutely baked into the Ukrainian population. That has to be seen as a Ukrainian victory. So this obviously would not be a complete Ukrainian victory, but I would still define that as a victory. The challenge, I think, is that uh, what would Ukraine accept? I've spoken with people who are fighting on the front lines who say there is no circumstance under which they will give up. Ukrainian leaders have said they will not accept anything other than a total victory. Uh, here's some tape from President Zelensky recently. We must win. We must do everything to win. This is a matter of survival for Ukraine and Ukrainians. So... Do you think that everyday Ukrainians feel the same way as the people who are fighting this war at the front lines and as the president does? I mean, would they be willing to accept some losses of territory to end this war? I mean, when I was in Ukraine last spring, which was before the offensive, I found that indeed a majority of Ukrainians I talked to did say we must fight on for complete victory. Only that is an option. But I have to say, speaking off the record, and none of them were willing to speak on the record, which does you know, say something about the limitations on speech in Ukraine today. But even then, a large minority, somewhere in the region of a third to two-fifths, said, look, we really hope that this offensive will succeed. We really hope that we will reconquer all our lost territories. But if it turns out that we can't, and if the prospect is years and years of warfare, hundreds of thousands more dead, with no realistic prospect of victory, then in the end, we may have to accept that these territories are lost. Now, on that score, though, there is, of course, a huge difference between Ukraine formally, legally giving up those territories in a treaty. That, I think, is absolutely impossible. No Ukrainian government could do that, and no Ukrainian government should be asked to do that. But of course, there have been quite a number of cases, like Cyprus, the division of Cyprus, where the territorial issue has never been solved. Um, It's just been 
endlessly deferred for future negotiation. And by the way, I mean, that is actually what Zelensky himself proposed in the first month of the war. He said, we will never you know, give up these territories, but we can agree to leave them in Russian hands pending negotiations. So in fact, let's end this conversation by coming back to this country, because it is a fiery debate in the halls of Congress, what we should do. Earlier today, I spoke with Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat who's adamant that the United States must send more money to Ukraine. The mantra has been from the president, from Democrats, and even a few remaining Republicans in Congress has been that if we don't, the war is lost. Russia will win. If the money does continue to flow somehow, would it be enough to solidify a victory for Ukraine? I should say, I strongly support continuing aid to Ukraine, exactly because it's true. If we do not continue aid, Ukraine will lose, and very rapidly, I fear. So aid should continue. But anyone who says that this aid is guaranteed indefinitely for as long as it takes is deceiving either themselves or the Ukrainians or the general public, because it obviously isn't guaranteed. What I think is quite possible, not certain, but possible, is that continued aid will allow the Ukrainians to hold their existing line, not counterattack again, but to hold their existing line. But if that's our aim, then the sensible thing is to combine that with a negotiating strategy. If you stand on the defensive indefinitely, then you've accepted that the territories under Russian occupation are lost. Anatole Levin is the director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Lots more on the war in Ukraine, as well as that case against former President Trump, on our website, hereandnow.org. Coming up, everything you ever wanted to know about leap days, leap years, and even leap seconds. No need to wait four years for this one. It's coming up right after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Check your calendar. It's February 29th. 
Still sounds weird every time I see it. Of course, a leap year only comes around just about every four years, and today is the day, which is why we have Jackie Faraday on the line. She's an astrophysicist and educator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Jackie, welcome. I'm happy to be here. Happy Leap Day. Yes, exactly. And I know Leap Day has everything to do with how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But I would say that I've gone around the sun a few times myself, and I still need a refresher, an explanation. Why does my (laughs) calendar say it's February 29th? Yeah, so this is the imperfectness of the calendar system, because the leap day has everything to do with how the Earth is moving around the sun and how long it takes to return to its exact same position. So if you ask kind of a person, how long does it take? they may answer 365 days, right? Yeah. And then if somebody might be more in the know, they might say "Mm, 365.25. And then if somebody's (laughs) super in the know, they might say the most accurate, which is 365.242190. And that is the number of days it takes for the Earth to go around the sun. And because you heard it, that was a decimal after, that means... At some point, if you keep pretending it's just 365 days, you are going to fall out of sync. So the seasons will get out of whack. So instead, okay, hold we on. inserted just for this a moment. day. Just for yeah. a moment. Hold it. You said the seasons will get out of whack. So are you saying if there was no leap year, it would be in the northern hemisphere like Christmas in July or something like that? Well, Christmas is uh, something we create as a holiday and a time. Right. But if you want your weather to be snowy in December, then that's the thing that'll get out of whack. So that the season, which is totally driven by the Earth's position as it's going around the sun, if you want that synced so that you get the same thing every March, you want it to be spring, and every December, you want it to be winter— then you need to make sure that your calendar is representing well where the Earth is as it's going around the sun. So that's why I say they'll be, they're actually not out of whack. The seasons will be fine. Nothing actually would be going on (laughs) physically. It's the way we experience them, right. So here's a question. Why is it at the end of February and not, say, March 32nd? Yeah, so this, I have to tell you, man, you could teach an entire course on the history of the calendar (laughs) and how people have been keeping track of time. We've got three minutes. (laughs) Well, the best I can do for you is tell you the people to blame for the February leap day is it's the Romans. As far back as 49 BC, when Julius Caesar said, we're going to do this Julian calendar thing and we're going to have a leap day that's going to fix all of our calendar issues because there were calendar issues before for the Romans, for lots of people were noticing the calendar issues. And the decision was to put it in February because that's kind of, it was the calibration month. Like that's the best explanation I can give you, that they just always lob this extra time to catch the calendar up into February. I just knew we could blame the Roman Empire for this. <laughs> Isn't that a TikTok trend? It's a TikTok trend, yes, right? it is. That was a joke, <laughs> right. Uh, now, so to that point, though, I wonder what kind of cultural lore and superstitions people have created around leap year over the years. You know, I was having a conversation with a good friend who's pregnant, and her due date is March 1st. 
And I was saying to her, oh, my goodness, what are your thoughts on this? And she was adamant that that baby would not be coming out on February 29th, no matter what. (laughs) Because it's the psychological component of having a birthday on a day that feels transient because it only comes every four years. So therein, you could interview a lot of women right now. Do you wonder if you have to schedule a C-section? What's the least popular C-section day? It might be February 29th. (laughs) It could be. I don't know. Those babies are special, though. They're leap babies. We like those. Uh, That's the flip side of it. That's the flip side. Yeah. Listen, I, I know there's something called a leap second. What is that all about? So the leap second is different than the leap day. Because the leap day has everything to do with how the Earth is moving around the sun. But the leap second has to do with the Earth's rotation on its axis, how long it takes the Earth to spin all the way around once. And that's not a perfect clock either. So every now and again, we add a leap second to make sure our clocks are synchronized with the imperfect Earth rotation. Time's hard. Time is is hard, hard. and we're out of time. So Jackie Faraday, astrophysicist and educator at the American Museum of Natural History, on the origins and the scientific nature of the leap year. Thank you. Happy Leap Day. Happy Leap Day. Happy Leap Day and Leap Year. You know what I only just realized this year? It's always Summer Olympics years when there's a leap day. They're both every four years. So there you go. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan and Julia Corcoran. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike also wrote our theme music along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Happy Leap Day, and we'll be back with you tomorrow for a regular old March 1st. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.